Welcome back to the Librarian Linkover podcast. I am your host, Laureen Kennard. My guest today is Kim Doherty. Kim is president of Doherty & Associates, where she provides information consulting services to for-profit and nonprofit organizations. Kim is also a library and information science career specialist and content developer. She creates and presents career-focused content for LIS career alternatives for students, grads, practitioners, and career transitioners. She speaks my language. Also, she's an adjunct faculty member in the Library and Information Sciences program at University of Denver. Her students are lucky to have her. Kim is a leader in this field, so I was happy when she agreed to be a guest on my podcast. Kim, welcome to the Librarian Linkover. Thank you, Laureen. I'm delighted to speak with you today. Great. Tell us why you started your business and what you offer your clients. Um, a couple of reasons for starting my business. The first one is that I um, ended up being a single parent supporting my son and I and wanted to make sure that although I had a, a terrific job that I loved that, that was a full-time job, I wanted to make sure that I had other options if I lost that job. So starting Doherty and Associates and doing side projects under Doherty and Associates gave me a secondary revenue stream that was very helpful for me and, and made me feel less anxious about um, being responsible for my son and I financially. The second thing was that I'm a true child of the 60s and don't do well with people telling me what I can and can't do. So this is kind of the way I enabled myself to be able to work on projects, other projects that I wanted to work on that were outside the scope of the job that I currently had. And I, I've sort of gone back and forth to between being an employee and working on my own under Doherty and Associates so that I had the freedom to do that. Um, and, and I like that. I'm sure that works. It does. It, it works really well. Have you always been entrepreneurial or did you find that from working in libraries? Actually, um, I have always been entrepreneurial because what I discovered is um, there are kind of two approaches to working. One is that you get a job and you love that job and you stay in that job and it's a nine to five job and, and you learn that <clears throat> sort of set of responsibilities and then maybe you grow in that job, but you, maybe you're there with that employer for 20 years or maybe you're there for five or 10 years and then you grow into a new position with more responsibility. I'm not the kind of person who can deal with the same kinds of responsibilities day in and day out. I'm a project person. And so I like to go in and do a project, sort of ramp it up, get it moving, push it through, do all that execution, and then have it be over, and then go on vacation for three weeks, or <laughs> read a book, or, or sort of debrief myself and say, you know, what worked on that, and what didn't, what did I learn, blah, blah, blah. But I find that I, I thrive on the, the adrenaline of a new project. And so for me to be doing the same thing over and over again for the same organization would be constraining. And I would lose, I would lose my engagement. I, I find or have found throughout my career that I seem to sort of have what I would call a two-year twitch point <laughs> and I can I can work as an employee and I'm usually brought in to create something as an employee so I can I can do that for about two years and at the end of two years there we're usually transitioning into okay we've done it we've pulled it off we've done a market launch now it's time to manage this like for the next 20 years and at that point it's like okay can I hand this baby off to someone else <laughs> and they can help they can manage it for the next 20 years because I'm starting to lose interest I want to explore what next cool thing is out there so it's it's basically sort of a project management lifestyle and, and thought process. And as I was going through grad school and looking at all the people who I adored, who I was going through the program with and what their aspirations were in terms of working in libraries, 
I realized I love these people, I admire and respect them. And I shoot myself if I had to do the same thing day after day after day. <laughs> so I didn't learn sort of what I know how to do by working in a library. I, I learned it by working around libraries and doing projects with libraries and with librarians and other information specialists. So that, that's kind of a roundabout answer, but that's why, and I've done this, a lot of startups I've done have been in special libraries or creating mm -hmm. a new information center or, or things like that. But I have never looked for a specific employment position in a library that I would commit to and do long-term. My first job out of library school, I was a solo in a corporate library. Mm -hmm. And I always said I have to do everything, but I also get to do everything. And that's exactly it. So when I was ready to make a move, I thought, could I just do one of these things all day? I don't <laughs> think I can. I'm used to doing like working on my own, like no one really knows what I'm doing. So I yeah. mean, I do what has to be done, but yeah, could I take one of these tasks and just do it all day? I don't think I can. So that's why I started a research business. I love to start freelance research. I, that makes complete sense to me. And it also gets to the point of, do you want to be a generalist or do you want to be a specialist? Because a specialist does that one thing and learns everything there is to learn about it and takes it to a point of excellence that is outstanding. And I'm always jealous, not jealous. I'm, I admire that and I'm quite frankly, somewhat intimidated by it, by that <laughs> level of expertise. On the other hand, I don't have the patience to give up everything else that I want to find out about and do and play with and explore to just do the one thing. I've also heard you're a builder or a maintainer. So I think mm. I'm a builder. Wow, that's fascinating. Like, yeah, I'm a builder. I was the first master's degree librarian they had. So I built the library Then I'm like, okay, I, I built it. Right. Now what? <laughs> no, yeah, let's, let's do something different. Right. <laughs> yes. Many of my guests have gained leadership, budget, and management skills working in libraries and then transitioned out of actual libraries to library-related organizations or to industry. What suggestions can you give to librarians who are interested in taking their skills outside libraries? And no pressure, but this is the whole point of my podcast. <laughs> so the big Actually, question. I think this is a question that every student in an MLIS or an iSchool program should be asking while they're going through school because I think this is so critically important. Um, and here is the, the sort of set of action items that I give to students when we talk about this because what we're talking about here is a pivot. We're talking about taking those skills that we have and pivoting them in a new direction. So what I recommend is not to try to do this until you have first gathered the information that you need. Because a lot of us hit a, a point of saying, that's it, I'm done, I need to go do new and different. And that's really handicapping because you're trying to make a decision before you have asked the questions and have the knowledge you need to have to make the right pivot, the right decision. So. I would say first you want to research and explore what might interest you. And that falls into two categories. What work might you do and for whom might you do it? What type of organization? And you can do that research through online literature searches, you know, reading profiles of people who have these, these skills and are doing this kind of work by joining a relevant association and getting to know those people and doing informational interviews with them. Um, so that first point is gathering the information you need to make that decision. I thought this sounded really cool, but it might not work for me. And so that's what you're trying to get to in that, that first question or first action item. And then the second thing is to start, once you've done that, and you've got maybe a direction in mind, you want to start building what I would call a, a, a bridge from where you are, what community you're a part of. And for a lot of that, for a lot of us, that's we're in the library community. You want to start building a bridge into the media community 
or the healthcare community or the health informatics community or the whatever community, but whatever direction you're headed, you can't just jump. You can't go from where you are to where you want to go because nobody knows who the hell you are, quite frankly. So that means you need to build relationships, i.e. a professional network, and visibility, i.e. a professional reputation, outside the LIS profession. So in order to do that, then you are joining relevant associations. And one of the cool things about doing that is that when you're the only information professional in an association that has nothing to do with that is a completely different association. If you volunteer and get visible in that association, everybody very quickly knows who you are because you have a skill that nobody else has. And when that's the case, and that information or that skill is information, you have the keys to the kingdom because nobody else can do what you can do in that association. So that's part of building that platform or that bridge into greater visibility and, and important relationships with professionals in the direction that you want to go. And then the last thing I would say is before you start looking for jobs and or a client in this new direction, you want to make sure that you understand their language. Because the thing that will most handicap you in trying to transition or transfer your skills in a new direction is if you go in using the language of the LIS profession rather than the language of whatever profession or industry you're trying to get traction in. So before you start talking to people, before you start creating your resume, before you um, sort of reshape your LinkedIn profile to talk to these people, you need to know the language they use. So you're using it as well. Because then when you come in, they'll take you seriously. If you're, you're going and say like bibliographic instruction to somebody um, <laughs> who's in the engineering field, they will look at you and think, she's speaking a foreign language. It has nothing to do with us. Who let this person in the door? You're in the wrong so, room. <laughs> so those are the, the kinds of action items that I encourage anyone looking at a pivot to undertake. And I want to be clear with asking that question that there isn't anything wrong with working in a library. There's just oh, no. some people have maxed out what they want to do. Or like I say in the trailer for my podcast, you know, the a career, your career should not end at public library director. That's not the end of the path. Right. So having said that, some librarians want to move up in their current library or move to a different kind of library type. It can be really hard to move around library types even though our skills are our skills, no matter where we use them. What suggestions can you give librarians who want to move from one library type to another? Great question. And one that comes up frequently with students when they are trying to figure out which path to mm -hmm. pursue in grad school. And I, I'm going to say something that I hope is not offensive to anyone anywhere in the profession. Um, but there is, quite frankly, a, how would I put this, sort of a status hierarchy in the library profession. And sometimes it can be difficult to move between um, types of libraries that have different perceived statuses. For example, I tend to think that school librarians are doing God's work. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I, can't, I can't say enough good complimentary things about the work that school librarians do. Mm -hmm. But out of, outside of the school librarian community, they are often dismissed as they just work with kids. So they're not as important or as knowledgeable or as high status as maybe an academic librarian is. And to me, that's incredibly unfortunate. It hinders the profession as a whole, as well as all the professionals. But the reality is, it is harder to transition between, say, a school library and an academic library job than should be the case. Mm -hmm. um, but it is the reality. So one way of doing that is to look for uh, sort of 
transition points where it is easier to have your existing skills recognized. For example, if you are a school librarian and you decide you want to go into public libraries, an easier transition there for you is going to be into child or teen services because everybody gets that you know this stuff cold. If you are trying to go from a public into an academic library, an easier transition for you there will be to go into community college libraries because they get how cool it is that you've got the public service diverse community skill set to work with their diverse community of students. And then after you've done that, you also have academic um, bibliographic instruction uh, skills and the kinds of background that academic librarians, academic libraries may be looking for as well. So what you're looking for there is recognizing that sometimes there are inappropriate but existing barriers in terms of status and assumptions, find, find a path through that um, because it does exist. So that would be my recommendation there. Great ideas. What kinds of questions do you get, or I'm sorry, what kinds of questions do your students ask about the profession and what do they want to do with their degree? <laughs> um, it depends on how far they are through the program. When they first come into the program, they are full of the confidence of here's why I started my graduate degree. I am going to grow up to be an, an academic librarian, or I'm going to be a public librarian, or whatever. Then they start, oh, maybe it's the first year through the program or a third <laughs> of the way through the program, and they have hit the deer in the headlights stage where <laughs> they realized, holy cow, there are 500 different things I could do with this skill set. I don't even know how to start thinking about this. So the first question I get usually is the, please help me, I'm drowning. Um, you know, how do I think about what I want to end up doing? That's really the big question. And so what we focus on is two things. The first one is, what kind of work most intrigues and engages you? What floats your boat? What's fun for you to do? So as you're going through your program, every time you take a new course, think, do I really love this? Or, yeah, this is fine, but I really don't care about this. The second thing is, where do you want to do it? Do you want to do it in a public library? And that means you're interviewing public librarians and learning about their work experience and gathering information. What is this job really like if I were to be doing it? So where do you want to do it? What type of an organization do you want to be working with? And then once we look at those kinds of questions, we start sort of narrowing it down to are there recurring themes? Are there themes of I love being part of a group? I love um, being a specialist. You know, I, I stumbled into data analysis and oh my God, all the lights went off. And it was like, I am, this is me. I'm a happy camper. So part of what we're talking about is being as open as possible to responding to what you're being exposed to. So I, I don't have answers for them. What I try to do is give them the right questions to be asking. And, and quite frankly, we can all be doing that all the way through our careers. Mm -hmm. um, there have been many things that I thought that I would love doing. And, and then when I started doing them, thought, okay, so seemed like a good idea at the time. <laughs> and now that I know more, I realize why I'm not the best person to be doing this job. Well, knowing so, what you don't want to do is just as important as knowing what you want to do. Absolutely. And especially given the fact that with our skills, we can do 2,500 different things. <laughs> so, yes. yes, yes, we can. You know, <laughs> part of the, the challenge is every time you can knock off one thing and say, I don't want to do that, you're, you've just advanced. As you say, knowing what you don't want to do is as valuable to you as knowing what you might want to do because it helps you narrow things down. When I talk to students, they always want to know how to get that first job. What do I put in my cover letter? You know, what do I put in my resume to get that job? Yeah. And I always tell them, don't put so much pressure on that first job. It's just your first job. God. It's not your last job. Yes. You need a job. It doesn't, not that it, you do, it doesn't matter, but 
you know, get a job and you can learn from your first job, get a network, you know, get some skills, and then you can like have a little more time yes. to focus on getting your next job. And, and I think that after, you know, students realize they're $50,000 in debt and they, <laughs> you know, just worked their tails off to get these degrees and gotten straight A's, the pressure to have that first mm -hmm. job be the perfect job sort of to validate why you just went through all that mm -hmm. is overwhelming, but it, you are exactly right. And I tell my students, emblazon this on your forehead. The first job is only the first job. Right. Um, it, all it is, is a foot in the door that says, right. I've started my career, but trust me when I tell you that your career 20 years from now is going to be so immensely different from what your expectations were when you started that first job, let go, you know, cut yourself some slack, let go of the pressure on yourself, just get started, just start anywhere. Yep. And wherever you start, keep your eyes open, ask lots of questions, and then just keep noting, what do I think about this? Does that look interesting to me? Does that look horrible to me? you know, just keep that feedback loop going on and on. I, I couldn't agree with you more. And I'm so glad you said that. <laughs> Why do you think we downplay our skills? I think it is a, an outcome of going through a graduate program where we're pretty much all doing the same thing. We are learning how to do cool stuff with information. And what happens is, and, and most of us who have gone through this pro process sort of knew we liked information and we liked books and we liked libraries. And so we were sort of surrounded with that kind of a mindset when that happens and you go into that environment where everyone around you has sort of that same framework, it causes you to downplay how unique having our skills and our worldview and our sort of mental frame, how unique that truly is. We take it for granted that if it's a part of us that's in, inherent in us, then everybody else has the same reaction. Everybody else thinks the same way. And consequently, what we can do isn't special. It's not particularly cool. We shouldn't ask to be paid a lot of money for it because really anybody could do this. Anybody could, you know, think the things we're thinking, they could see the solutions we're, we're, we're seeing. And I didn't quite realize that until I started working in places where I was the only one who had information skills. And people thought I could do magic. And, and they would pay me as if they thought I could do magic, which I thought was actually fantastic. But yes, an example of this is, is that I was working with a woman who was really well known as sort of the, the entrepreneurial um, mother or grandmother in Colorado, which is where I'm working. And she got, she and I connected because there was a, a women in business conference that was put on locally. It was a really big deal. I always went on the entrepreneurial track because as we discussed, I don't like people telling me what to do. <laughs> and at the end of one of those sessions, I went up to her and she was in charge of, I went up to her and said, this is a really cool program, but I think what happens is we hear these speakers and then we have no way to continue learning more about what they're talking about. So how about if I put together a bibliography of recommended books on all these different topics so that for every presentation, we've got more that we can keep learning. And I, you know, that was like a no brainer for me. And, and I was happy to do it. It was like anybody would have thought to do that. They just didn't have time. Mm -hmm. I recommended that to this woman who thought I was a gift from God. She couldn't <laughs> believe how brilliant that was. And, and so we ended up having a friendship and it was wonderful. And every time she was gonna give any kind of a national speech on her speaking tours, she would call me and say, oh my gosh, Kim, I'm trying to track this down. Can you possibly find out for me the answer to this question? So one time she was in Chicago 
and she was getting ready to make a presentation the next day and she was trying to find out what do you call a group of lions and so she called me at midnight and said i know there's going to be no way you can find this but any possibility you could track this information down for me and and get it back to me before i make my speech tomorrow i of course said i i'll do what i can that's a tough one but let me see what i can do and by the way this was before the internet mm. so i said call me back in a half an hour so she calls me back in the half in half an hour in the meantime i have gone to my son's world book encyclopedia and i have checked out <laughs> it's called the pride of lions and jean calls me back in half an hour and says any possibility you came up with the answer and literally i'm going <sighs> Okay. Okay. Yeah. Jean, you're not going to believe it, but I found it. It's called a pride of lions. And so she's ecstatic. And I did not say what most of us tend to say, which was, oh, it's really easy. I found it in the World Book Encyclopedia. I said, it took me a while to track it down, but I found the right source. That's the difference between how the rest of the world sees what we can do and how we present it to the world. Anytime we say, oh, it didn't take me very long, or it was easy to find, or, oh, you could found it on your own, or anybody could do that, we have just devalued our skills. When we say, it's part of my skill set, or I love doing really difficult research questions, or things that showcase and highlight, I have a specialized, very valuable skill set, then the world starts recognizing we've got superpowers. But when you're in grad school, all you're thinking is, oh, I can do this, but everybody else can do this too. So part of it is to stop devaluing what you can do simply because the other people immediately around you have the same skill set. I'm going to be using that for a long time. <laughs> because I never thought of it that way when you're when you're in library school or even when you work in a library you all sort of come up with the same skills it doesn't seem like it's big of a deal exactly exactly so you're out in the wild exactly and you're the only one and then it's very obvious then it's amazing I love that and and when you are out in the wild the more you make it clear how amazing you are by never saying it was really easy the more people, quite frankly, are going to pay you. That's true. That's true. Sort of along these lines, um, what do you think are the top two or three issues in libraries today, good or bad? Not necessarily students or job hunting, but like libraries in general. What do you think are some of the top issues we should be thinking about? Um, the number one issue that I think about, and I encourage both students and would would encourage libraries to think about as well is assume that there are no hard and fast assumptions anymore. How do you develop a mindset to become as adaptable as possible? So a way I would explain this is um, when I was going through grad school, I'm really dating myself here, but when I was going through grad school, the internet did not exist. So I was planning for a career based on the tools that did exist, based on everything being print, based on a, the difficulty of finding and aggregating and presenting information. That is no longer the case. My career is now entirely online. I teach online. Um, I, a lot of my writing is online, I coach online. The internet has completely upended every single expectation I had when I graduated from my MLIS program. And so I would say for any student, any practitioner who's gotten used to thinking they know what libraries are about, <laughs> any library director who's assumed because they've been successful for 10 years doing the things the way they've done them, that the next 10 years are going to be the same and that the same activities will be equally successful? Absolutely not. I mean, I, 
I would, if I were a library director, have regular planning sessions that say, essentially scenario building, that say, if that happened, how would we cope with it? If that happened, how would we cope with it? And everybody will say, oh, that would never happen. Right. I think we have now all seen over the last five years that everything we believed could never happen is happening, has happened, or is likely to happen. So it's a, it's a question for a new uh, professional, for older professionals who've been at it for a while, simply, certainly for students. How do I develop a mindset of resiliency and adaptation rather than having a mindset of, I assume the future will look like it does today? Because you have to know it won't. So how do you pivot? How do you respond? How do you become proactive? How do you think through possible responses? So the first one I would say is learning to be adaptable. Um, the second one I would strongly recommend is to think about libraries not as, as um, resources waiting for someone to ask you to dance but instead saying, we're out here on the dance floor boogieing with the rest of you. And, <laughs> and we are active partners, participants, mm -hmm. and we are fully engaged in supporting the strategic goals of this community, of this organization, um, of this whatever. Do not wait to be asked to dance. So any information professional, any librarian who thinks, I can be successful by being available when needed. You've just cut your effectiveness down to one one hundredth of what you can actually do. So the second one is developing a mindset of engagement and, and participation. Don't wait, jump in. Um, that would be my second point. And then the third one would be to figure out and this is a much broader and difficult issue. We now live in a society where information can be, be easily weaponized. And we are some of the few individuals, relatively speaking, who gets this, who sees it, who thinks about it. Um, we need to keep thinking about it. One of the interesting um, research reports that I read recently, I think came out of the the Newman Center, it's, it, they, it's a, for journalists and it's their sort of research arm, their institute. And it was about a year ago and they were trying to figure out that because they were losing so much trust as journalists in the community, which was a role they had sort of taken for granted previously, the most trusted group was librarians. And they were trying to figure out, could we partner with librarians <laughs> so people would trust us more? And which I found absolutely hysterical, but it really sort of drove home the idea that we are in, as librarians and information professionals, in a totally unique role, which is that people trust us when we say, this is the truth. That's a, a wonderful place to be but it is not an unassailable place to be, as we've seen with school boards. Mm -hmm. um, you know, poor old school board members that, you know, got talked into being on the school board. And so they show up and they do the school board thing. All of a sudden they're under attack and their kids are being threatened. And, you know, all of this craziness is going on. Mm -hmm. Well, this is moving into libraries, into academic libraries, into school libraries, into public libraries, and we're not prepared for this. You know, we, we're sort of like, wait a minute, we're the nice guys, we're the good guys. Why are you attacking us? Well, we're being attacked because we can be attacked and because we are arbiters of truth and fact. So as a, as a group, librarians and information professionals, I think need to recognize this, recognize how vulnerable we are and start preparing for it now. How would we respond if this happened to us? What, 
what do our values tell us to do, but also what does reality tell us to do? I mean, our values tell us to be neutral and objective and always be the good guys. But if we're getting totally attacked by false information, do we still respond in that neutral way? Or are there other things that we need to consider to fight more effectively for truth? So I, those would be the things I would say. I would say that people attack libraries because we don't fight back. Yep, that's ex absolutely correct. We and want we everyone are going mad at us. Yes. We and we are back. trained not to fight back. We are mm -hmm. trained to stay neutral. But I would recount a story of a woman that I admire more than I can possibly state. And her name is Michelle Jeske. She is the city librarian for Denver. And our Denver uh, main library is downtown right next to our civic center. And so we have tons of people coming into the main library where Je uh, Michelle's offices are and overdosing in the stacks. Oh. Um, I, it, it's horrible. And so Michelle, who is nothing if not a realist and a pragmatist, and frankly, one of the most intelligent people I know, um, looked at that and said, what is our mission? What is our responsibility? So she trained all of her librarians to be able to administer Narcon. And they administer Narcon if someone is overdosing and then they call the paramedics and they come and remove them. That's not what Michelle wants her librarians to be doing, but that is Michelle facing reality and saying, we can't pretend this is not happening. Well, when Michelle did that, our mayor, the Denver mayor attacked her because it became a political issue. Oh my God, there are junkies in the downtown library and, and the library is not doing anything about it. And so our mayor saw a great political issue and attacked Michelle and attacked the librarians in public. He made you know, a press conference. And Michelle, who is the most gracious, um, just a gracious, intelligent, wonderful person I can imagine, held a press conference of her own nice. and said, I already like her. <laughs> I know. It. She said, basically, okay, mayor, you're wrong. Here are the facts of the situation. I would have hoped that you would have gotten those facts before you attacked our librarians. But here's what the reality is. If you would like this to change, perhaps the, the um, city council and the legislature could fund um, programs to deal with the addicts that are coming into our public library. But until that time, I am expecting a public apology to my librarians. Nice. She got it. The mayor apologized. So this is sort of that issue of we don't push back. We, we don't demand and expect the kind of respect that we deserve. Um, and, and I'm hoping that this is now this kind of a mindset is going through all public libraries because she just uh, rolled off being public library association president. But this is an example of exactly what you just said, which is we are trained to not push back. And, and Michelle pushed back and did it beautifully and professionally, didn't shout, didn't stomp her feet, just said, no, nah, that is not acceptable. I will not allow that to stand. I expect an apology. So I, I would say that's important. Handled it very professionally. Yes, absolutely. And it's mission creep sometimes. We're yes. doing things that, uh, frankly, the health department should be doing and uh, other, other departments, but that's absolutely. a whole other absolutely. box of mine. All of, <laughs> we don't say no. We well, never say no. All we of the social issues for it, but roll down. It. Yeah, mm -hmm. it all rolls into the library. And then because it's behind the library doors, nobody has to look at it, but we have to deal with it. So yeah, couldn't agree more. Yep. And I love that all of your issues apply to any library type. I think so. I think any, so. No matter where you are, you have to be you know, ready to adapt all the time. Yep, yep. And it's not just a pandemic or the internet, oh, just right. like things happening right. in your community or with budget or something, it means you've got to 
change something yes. big. Yes. What suggestions can you give librarians who want to go into business for themselves? Well, as someone who loves being in business for myself, my response would be, hot damn, go for it. It's really fun. <laughs> <laughs> but as someone who's trying to be very realistic and pragmatic, um, what I would say is, if you want to be in business for yourself, it's, it's more fun than you can possibly imagine. It's incredibly rewarding, but it's a lot easier to do if you have first built your professional chops, your professional reputation, your professional network, because over that time you have also, excuse me, <clears throat> built specialized skills. And it's the specialized skills that you are going to use in your business. So for me, my specialized skills were I could research and I could write. And that those things together translated into content development. But I had first worked as an employee for a number of organizations, developing those skills so that then I could see not only how they fit together as a package that I could offer to a potential client, but I could also see where the need was. So the fact that I didn't graduate from my MLIS program and then immediately set off not knowing what I didn't know meant that I gave myself enough time to learn what I didn't know and to understand the most important difference when you're in business for yourself, which is the difference between nice to have and need to have. And if you are offering a business service that is nice to have, you will starve to death. If you are offering <laughs> a business service or product or whatever that is need to have, in other words, your client needs to have this whatever in order to succeed in what they're doing, that's when you get paid and that's when you get valued and that's when you move into building a trust relationship with those clients where they see you as part of the team and they can't, their team doesn't work if you're not available to help them out. So I think that would be the first thing is don't rush into it. Um, the second thing would be to, again, getting back to what you do and who you do it for, um, while you're working for an employee who, bless your heart, they're giving you a salary and benefits. While you're doing that, spend your spare time exploring who needs what, how, in what form do they need it? How often do they need it? How big is the market for what they need? And how much are they willing to pay for it? And, and that comes down to testing that, that out. Like I'm gonna do X, Y, Z and everyone who loves you will say, oh, that's a great idea. We think you should do that. <laughs> and everyone will love to have that and they'll pay you lots of money. And then, you try to market it and you realize, well, they do love it and they're willing to pay you $25 for it when you were sort of hoping for $2,500 for it. <laughs> so I would say, do your research before you, as in as many different ways as you can. Um, the third thing is to, if at all possible, try out what you're thinking of doing as a side gig before you launch that gives you two benefits the first thing is you're learning all that really painful information while you still got a salary coming in so it's painful enough to to learn that information you don't want to do it at the same time that you're thinking oh my god how am i going to pay my mortgage the second thing is if you start doing whatever you want to do, and that could be freelance research, it could be indexing books, it could be um, doing custom taxonomies, anything you can do as a librarian, you can do freelance. But you want to be learning that stuff on the side and working on it on the side because all that time you're building up a client base. That way, if you then need to pivot into that side gig as a full-time position, you've already built 
the platform and the client base for the work that you did. And that's how I built my business was I was always working a full-time job um, so that I knew I had that steady income coming in. But on the side, I was also doing the work that I wanted to do eventually um, independently so that by the time my kiddo went off to college and I had the freedom then to quit the full-time job and just pivot to my, my um, sort of free enterprise work, it was there. It, I had already built it. And so it was an easy segue into that. How, however, the most important thing I would recommend, recommend to everyone, even if what you're thinking about doing is not doing research as your information skill, read a book called Building and Running a Successful Research Business by Mary Ellen Bates. Mm -hmm. Because Mary Ellen walks you through, here are all the questions you need to have answers to. And if you don't have the answers to them, you're not ready to launch. And so she'll sort of walk you through thinking about your market, thinking about pricing, thinking about your workflow, thinking about all of these different things that before you launch your own business, you want to have thought those through and tested out your assumptions. So those would be my reactions there. I will co-sign on Mary Ellen's book. <laughs> and the and first Mary, and the second way, editions. <laughs> she, uh, you know, I just actually, she's a good friend and we were together last week. What she ended up doing, instead of writing a new edition of that book, she wrote a book called The Reluctant Entrepreneur. Mm. And, and so it basically takes the same concept, but it says, this is for anyone who has a skill set of any sort who wants to turn it into a business or a sideline. And so it sort of updates some of that information from um, building and running a successful research. I would, I would recommend both of them. I have both of them. I have my students read both of them. <laughs> well, there's good information in there, even if you're not going to have a business. Yes, I think. I would agree. Just to I work in a business, there's, there's good information to know well, how things work. Yep. And, and it sort of gets back to my basic assumption about whatever we're doing, whoever we're working for, assume that we are all self-employed mm -hmm. because you want to you, you be clear that all it takes is one boss who doesn't like you and you are now self-employed. <laughs> You're self-employed. And so I've gone through my whole career looking at every job that I had as temporary and I needed to be thinking about what's next. Some of my other guests who have business, so when I asked them, you know, why they went into business and they're like, I didn't have a job. I don't have a job anymore. So yep. I haven't really been entrepreneurial, but exactly. I don't have a job anymore. So and, and, and that is the sort of business. Yep. That's the accidental entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. And and that's a way that it ends up happening a lot of times. But the more prepared we can be for that, mm -hmm. I think the better off we are. The it's easier it will be. It's not as scary as people think. Oh, it's fun. <laughs> Why did you go to library school? And based on your career so far, does that reasoning still hold? Um, okay, the reason I went to library school was that I was working for the Denver Magazine, which was a city magazine like we're all sort of familiar with. And I kept being asked to do all the research. And I realized I really loved it. And I would be researching something and I would call the library, the public library and say, okay, here's what I'm trying to find out for one of my writers or one of my editors is how did this happen or, or who did this or whatever? And they would give me an answer and I always wanted to know where they found it. How did you find that? And I realized I was an information junkie <laughs> and I was just fascinated by all the information that was out there. And I couldn't stand not to be able to come up with an answer to a question that I had. And so I realized, I think research could be a field for me that I would really enjoy because you're always researching something new. And so I decided I would go to uh, the Den University of Denver grad program to learn how to use all of those research tools because it was clear to me from all my phone calls 
the librarians knew where that stuff hung out. And I wanted to know that. I didn't want to be a librarian. I wanted to be able to play with the information. Yes. And so I had an undergraduate degree in writing and comparative literature. And I, started, I went to grad school and I got the um, MLIS. And then I ended up working for Libraries Unlimited, which is a publisher, and, and spent more time doing book publishing through them. And, and then my career just kind of took off from there being involving research and writing and content development. Um, and, and advising, information advising. And yes, that still holds. That in one way or another, that is what I'm doing now. And I think that's why I love it so much is because if you do research, you are always learning something interesting and new. And in these days, if you can do research, you can actually find out what's true and what's not true, which is very helpful. <laughs> so that's yes, helpful. Uh, that's why I went to grad school. I, I am embarrassed to say, but I'll put this out for out there for any students who are in, in the same boat. When I started grad school, um, I didn't know what the Dewey Decimal System was. <laughs> I didn't know what Library of Congress was. Um, I basically knew nothing about libraries, except that librarians were wonderful when you walked in the door and threw yourself on their mercy. Um, so yeah, I would say it's a great place to start. Where can people find you or your business on social media? I know you have a LinkedIn group. I have a LinkedIn group um, and I'm embarrassed about how long it has been since I posted on that LinkedIn, <laughs> but it, that group, but it's called LIS Career Options. And it started off as this little group that I was hoping could be like a focus group for a book that I happened to be writing at the time. And I was thinking maybe I would have 35 people in it. And now there are over 15,000 people in it. Oh my gosh. <laughs> From what? 80 different countries. And, wow. and so be careful what you wish for. <laughs> and then I also have a blog called infonista.com. Um, and again, I have sorely, sorely neglected it. But a lot of what's posted on there, it, it's all about careers. It's all about career strategy and tactics and opportunities and that sort of thing. So those are my two sort of primary areas. Well, thank you so much for doing this. You're a giant in our field and oh. I could and have talked with you for hours. Um, <laughs> we could talk a lot longer, um, but I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. It's gonna be hugely beneficial for everyone who listens. Well, thank you so much, Lorraine. And thank you for doing this work. Um, the profession really, really needs it. And, and so now I have this great excuse to start doing some more social media posting and saying, okay, everybody, you have to go listen to what Laureen is doing. This is really <laughs> important. <laughs> well, thank you so much. That means a lot coming from you. I'll take those 15,000 uh, listeners out of your uh, group. That'll there be we go. There <laughs> we go. Half. <laughs> <laughs> thank you to Kim Doherty for being my guest today on the Librarian Linkover. Thank you to my listeners who've been so supportive since I started this podcast in the spring. I'm starting to compile your feedback for posting on my website. So let me know what you think. I love hearing how valuable you are finding the content that my guests and I are creating. Please comment on the episodes on thelibrarianlinkover.com or on social media on Twitter at liblinkover, on LinkedIn at thelibrarianlinkover and on Instagram at thelibrarianlinkover. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you.